0: Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter six, verse twelve. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, specifically, right now, we're at the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew six twelve is where we will pick things up this morning. On May 11, thousand and two, on their way home from the beach. Megan Napier and her friend Lisa Dixon were struck by a drunk driver and killed. Eric Smallridge was the man. He was 24 years old. He'd been the drunk driver who was the cause of their death. He was arrested and charged and convicted, and he was sentenced to 22 years in prison. Uh, Renee, Megan's mom, entered into what was an incredibly dark season in her life. In the aftermath, though Eric was in prison, Renee would tell you that she felt like the prisoner because her heart was so full of bitterness and anger and hatred towards Eric for what he'd done. She began in the months following to travel around and to speak in schools and churches and at other events against drunk driving and the dangers of it. And it was during that time that God began to bring conviction to Renee. A conviction about the unforgiveness she had in her heart towards Eric, the man who had taken her daughter from her. And God in time led her to reach out to Eric in prison and to go visit him. And as she visited with him, uh, she recognized that, that in that moment, God was calling her to, to look Eric in the eye, And to say the hardest words he'd ever spoken, I forgive you. The impact of Renee's obedience was profound. For Eric, he he struggled. He, He said, I can't even forgive myself, and now she forgives me. But through Renee's obedience, Eric came and found the grace and mercy, the forgiveness of Jesus, he entered into a relationship with Jesus, surrendering his life to Christ. Following Renee's step of obedience, one by one, 11 other members of Renee's family went like she had to prison and expressed to Eric their forgiveness for him. And eventually they, they went to the court, they, they petitioned the court to reduce Eric's sentence from 22 years to 11. The judge had never faced requests like that. Never experienced that. But he granted it. And in 2012, Eric was released. Received, really, by Renee and her family as a member of the family and a brother in Christ. He was freed. He was forgiven. This morning, we come to what I believe are the most arresting words in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us about forgiveness. There are words about forgiveness. A prayer For forgiveness. Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven. Forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. This is the only petition. Of the six petitions. In the Lord's prayer. That actually has a rider. Verses 14 and 15. Are an expansion of this one line. In the prayer, verse 14 and 15, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Arresting words indeed. They're words that cause us to pause. They're words that, quite honestly, inject a certain level of trepidation into our hearts if we're honest. What are we to do with these words? What are we to make of such a petition. Our Father in heaven, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. These words, this petition leaves us with a desperately important question running through our minds and our hearts. Is Jesus saying, is Jesus teaching us that God's forgiveness of our sins is contingent upon us first forgiving the sins of others? Now before we dive more deeply into this petition of the prayer and answer that question, let's once more get our bearings. I want to remind you what is absolutely vital for us to remember, that is the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of rules for us to follow. It's not a new law. It's not the old law cranked up on steroids. The Sermon on the Mount is Not about what you and I have to do to get saved. It's not about what you and I have to do to be Christians, to be disciples of Jesus, to gain God's favor. The Sermon on the Mount is not prescriptive. It's not telling us how we must behave or what we must look like. No, the Sermon on the Mount is descriptive. Jesus is painting a picture. Jesus is describing what our lives look like when the good news takes root in our hearts. When the Holy Spirit is having His way in our lives. The gospel is the good news that in Christ's coming, a whole new order of existence is breaking into the world. The future is spilling into the present. Heaven is invading the earth. I've been contending throughout this series that when the good news takes hold of a person's life, a heart, takes root in our hearts, something happens. And that something that happens is described for us here in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that something that happens is the creation of a new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity. Men and women, boys and girls, teenagers who have different characteristics, a different purpose, different behaviors, different motivations, different ambitions. Over the last number of Sundays, we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer that we find in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. What what does prayer look like for those who are gospelized? In the Lord's prayer, Jesus provides us a model of that, gospelized prayer. This is how we are to relate to the one whom he calls Father. And and he begins by telling us to pray, our Father in heaven. That is, he he tells us to, to, to relate to God with this intimacy, God is one who loves us like a father. He, uh, there is intimacy, and so we come to him not as judge, but we come to him as his children, sons and daughters, and pray, our Father, and our Father in heaven, one who is over all, who has all authority, who has all power, who has all might, we come to him, and we come to him in community. Our relationship with Jesus, yes, we enter it as individuals, but we're not called to Christ to live as individuals, but called into community. God is not populating heaven with a bunch of individuals but creating a people for his name and then he leads us jesus teaches us to pray with our eyes first fixed on the matters concerning god directly we encounter the pronoun your three times your name your kingdom your will how would be your name father would you make the goodness and glory your graciousness your love make it known in all the earth show Who you are to the whole world, Father. Hallowed be your name. Your your kingdom come. Father, we know that you are king over every king's, but we want to see it more and more. Let's see your kingdom in this world increasingly, Lord. Reign without rival. Your will be done. Father, your will, not ours. Because we know that your will for us, for humanity is, is flourishing. It's for our good. It is to bless. And so, Father, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, and at the halfway point of the prayer, we shift. We shift first. Last week we looked at the first, the first petition that is focused at at, at our at us. At give us our daily bread, Father. Would you meet our needs, not our needs for the distant future, our needs for the day, for the next 24 hours. Meet our every need, Father, because you are good. You are good and you are with us and you are our provider. This morning we turn to the fifth of six petitions. I want to read the prayer to you again as as a whole as we turn to this fifth petition. Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one this morning there are a number of things that I want to do in our time together one of them is answering the question that I asked earlier is Jesus teaching us that God's forgiveness for us is contingent upon us first forgiving the sins of others but I'm not going to start there I want to start by exploring the terminology Around sin and forgiveness that we encounter in this prayer. Second, I, I want us to flip ahead to, in Matthew's Gospel and, and look at another incident and a parable that Jesus tells that that employs that same terminology and that proves really helpful for us as we study this fifth petition. Third, I want to unpack uh, for a few minutes our greatest obstacle to to really uh, to ready obedience to God's teaching here on, on matter of forgiveness. Fourth. I want to highlight what is the consistent biblical witness when it comes to the matter of forgiveness. And fifth, we'll look at the implications of all that we've discovered for our lives. And in the course of doing so, we will answer the question, uh, what does Jesus mean when he says, forgive us as we forgive others? So first, the terminology that we encounter here. Uh, There is throughout Scripture uh, a wide range of of language, of terms used to speak of sin. In fact, the Old Testament has over 50 terms to speaking of, of sin. We, we hear sin described as disobedience, a, as wickedness, as an offense, uh, of missing the mark, like archery. We're supposed to hit a bullseye and we're wildly off. Uh, of, of iniquity, the idea of bending or twisting or distorting. The, 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 the sense of uncleanness that that sin is something that needs to be washed away. Transgression, crossing a boundary, crossing a line that we ought not to cross. As rebellion, that is this relational sense that we are in revolt, that sin is treason. Here in our text, here in the Lord's Prayer, in the fifth petition, we encounter another term. And the term we encounter here actually comes not from the world of religion, but from the world of commerce. Here in this prayer, Jesus likens sin to debt. Here's what William Barclay says. He says, it it denotes something which is owed, something which is due, something which is a duty or an obligation to give or to pay. And and likewise, the word used here for forgive uh, comes not from the religious context, but again, from the world of commerce. It it has the sense of, of, of wiping the slate clean, erasing a balance in the ledger. Jesus here is teaching us to pray, Father, cancel all that we owe. Father, wipe the slate clean. Father, erase the ledger that records our outstanding debts. What is implicit in Jesus' words is the fact that you and I are in debt to God. But That leaves us with a question, then what, what precisely is that debt? What, what is it we owe God? And, In a word, we we owe God obedience. We owe God uh, full surrender. God made us. We are his. We belong to him. We are called to obey him, to live lives of submission to him. Thus, every time you and I fail to do that, every time we do not do what he commands us to do, every time we do what he commands us not to do, we are incurring a debt, a growing debt, a debt of obedience that we have failed to pay Jesus teaches us to pray, Father in heaven, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. Let's turn secondly to an event and a related parable that Jesus shares with us. Using the same uh, terminology from the world of commerce. You can flip ahead in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 18, if you will. But before I read this parable that Jesus tells, I want to set it up, provide the context Peter, the disciple, comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus a question. He he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And before he gives Jesus even a chance to answer, uh, Peter offers what he thinks is an incredibly generous answer. He says, up to seven times? How many times, Jesus, up to seven times? The Jewish Talmud said that you only needed to forgive someone, uh, the same person, three times. And so here Peter is thinking he's being incredibly generous. How about seven times? That's more than twice what the Talmud tells us to do. How about that, Lord? Is that pretty incredible if I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times. Depending on your translation. Some translations translate it seven times seven times. These numbers... 7 and 77, which I would suggest is the accurate translation, I'll speak to that more in a moment, are not random numbers just picked out of the air. In Genesis 4, we read about a man named Lamech. Lamech was wounded by someone, and in response, Lamech murdered that person. And then he celebrated his vengeance This was his song. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. He celebrates his revenge, his vengeance. Daryl Johnson writes this. The numbers 7 and 77 on the lips of Peter and Jesus speak of the reversal of the natural human tendency towards resentment and revenge. A reversal which Jesus has come to effect in the human soul. A quick word about the translation. As I said, some translations say 7 times 70. Likely, uh, 77 times, like I said, is the more accurate translation. But but regardless of how translators uh, tackle those difficult Greek numbers, here's what one scholar, uh, R.T. France, writes in his commentary. This statement by Jesus is in the language of hyperbole. Not of calculation. Those who are concerned as to whether the figure should be 77 or 490 have missed the point. There is no limit, no place for keeping a tally of forgiveness already used up. Peter's question was misconceived. If one is still counting, one is not forgiven. Then Jesus tells a story, Matthew 18, 30. 23. I'm going to begin reading this parable that Jesus tells. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how your, my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. A sobering parable to be sure. What I want us to grasp as fully as we can from this picture that Jesus paints for us. Concerns the debt that we owe him. Tim Keller says this about this parable. All scholars point out the deliberately unrealistic nature of this sum. The, the debt owed. An ordinary working man could expect to earn perhaps a single talent in a year. Translated in today's terms in which the average working class job earns 40000 a year, that makes the debt $400 billion. 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents. We need to understand the magnitude of the debt we owe. The servant owes. $400 billion. See, the point seems obvious. Each one of us owes God a massive, insurmountable debt. We, we cannot pay it back. Ever. God's forgiveness cannot be earned. We can do nothing to earn it, to pay it back. I mean, what are you going to do? Say, hey, hey God, I'm going to be really good and I'm going to show up at worship and I'm trying to be kind and not, no road rage when someone cuts me off. I'm going I'm to work really hard, God, at being good to pay back the debt, to pay back the $400 billion I owe you. Tim Keller says that would be like saying, God, I'll pay you back the $400 billion I owe you, $5 a month. We cannot pay back the debt that we owe. And it's at this point that we encounter our greatest obstacle to obeying, to living out what Christ is calling us to, what these words invite us to, call us to. So let's turn our attention to that, the third thing, the obstacle to our obedience. That obstacle to our obedience, to ready, willful, joyful obedience to Christ in this matter of forgiveness lies in our inadequate sense of the debt we owe to God. See, we each tend to, just as human beings, we tend to minimize our own sin and exaggerate the sin of others. We are tempted to think that God bases, that before God we stand there, that God bases His judgment of us on a curve, right? Like, we know we've done some wrong stuff, but like we haven't done the really bad stuff. But it's simply not true. Scripture will not let us hold that view. Paul in Romans, speaking to to Jewish Christians, to the religious, the religious believers who think that somehow they have an in with God because they, they've followed the law or attempted to compared to the pagan Gentiles that are described in chapter 1. Paul says, Paul says this in Romans 3, There is no one righteous, not even one. This, to Jewish believers, to, to Jewish people, saying that you, have, you, are, you are in no better place than the pagans around you. That, that we come before God, all of us alike, desperately in need. Yes, our, our, our sin, our brokenness, our lostness might look different, but we all have a mass debt. Keller says this in his book, Forgiver. The world is not divided into good people who are going to heaven and bad people who are not Everyone is lost. Everyone is lost. Everyone owes an insurmountable debt. And Remember, our debt is our failure to obey God in all things. It's vital that we recognize the magnitude of our debt. We need only take a few moments to glance back at the Sermon on the Mount to, to feel the weight of this. Remember, Jesus came in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says the law stands. The law describes what our lives are to look like. The law stands. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect we can glance back through the old testament over the 10 commandments you shall have no other gods before me every time you or i have treasured have loved anything or anyone more than we have treasured and loved god we are guilty of breaking the first commandment you shall have no you shall not make for yourself an image every time we this isn't just physical idols but wrong ideas, wrong conceptions of who God is, we are guilty you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy when we, in our sense of Self-importance think we can't stop. When we fail to receive the gift of rest from God, we are guilty. You shall not murder. Jesus talked about this. Murder is not merely shedding the blood of someone else. Even anger at a brother or sister makes us guilty. You shall not commit adultery. It includes what goes on between our ears. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. You shall not desire and want something that is not yours. We could go on. But the truth is, Every one of us stands condemned. Every one of us needs to recognize the insurmountable debt we owe because we have failed to give God the obedience that we owe Him. Every every failure to live up to His commands. Every failure to live up to the obligations of the kingdom puts us in debt. A growing debt, a mammoth debt, an enormous insurmountable debt. Daryl Johnson calls it a titanic debt. A titanic mortgage. We need to think about that for a moment. We need to feel the weight of our sin and our guilt before God. The weight of what we owe. Because when we do that, we will recognize that we stand in desperate need of God's mercy. That there is no other way. That we have no other hope. And that turns us to the fourth thing I wanted to do, the biblical witness of forgiveness. Jesus teaches us to pray. This is amazing. Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, cancel our debt. Father in heaven, wipe it out. Erase the ledger. Just make it gone. Can you imagine? Can you imagine walking into your bank whoever holds your mortgage, if you have a mortgage, and saying, can you just cancel it? When Chris Lane and I no longer owe $400 billion on our mortgage, the, the end is in sight. It's still a ways to go. But, but even still, if we walked into the bank and said, hey, can you just, like, just erase that, click delete, gone? That'd be pretty remarkable. Jesus teaches us to go to, to the, the Father, our Father in heaven, and say, Father, cancel our debt. Wipe it out. Erase the ledger. And the one who teaches us to do that is the one to whom we owe an insurmountable debt because we ask him to cancel it, and Jesus cancels it. God cancels it. Here's the good news. The biblical witness is clear. Let me read. Psalm 32, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Colossians 2, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us and taken away, nailing it to the cross. He's erased it. He says, come to the Father and say, cancel our debts, and and he cancels it in his generous mercy God has wiped the slate clean. This bold prayer is answered because the one who taught us to pray it is the one who went to the cross to pay it. See, the forgiveness is free to us, but it was not free. Our debt was incurred by Jesus. Jesus paid the debt with his life and we are credited with the obedience of Christ. The obedience we owed God is a gift to us, paid by Christ. And our debt is wiped out by our Heavenly Father. We pray, Father, forgive our sins, and it's erased. The ledger is erased. It brings us fifthly to the implications of our lives and The answer to the question I asked earlier. Jesus did not teach us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts because we forgive others. Jesus did not teach us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts on the grounds of the fact that we have already forgiven our debtors. Jesus teaches us to pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In the parable that Jesus tells, the king's forgiveness is first. The king cancels the debt first. He wipes the slate clean first. See, God forgiving our sins is not contingent upon us first forgiving others. But here's the point. If we grasp the debt we owe, If we grasp our desperate need for his mercy, that his mercy is our only hope, then we cannot help but be changed into men and women who in turn extend mercy, who who overflow with forgiveness and grace. Remember the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful. The the Beatitudes describe the character of the gospelized. When the gospel takes root in our lives, we are transformed. We are changed into men and women who exude mercy because we have first encountered His glorious, amazing mercy. He's wiped the slate clean. He has paid the debt. Tell me this. Who can come before the Father... And ask him, Father, cancel our debt. And at the same moment, refuse to cancel someone else's. Those two movements of the heart are utterly incompatible. D.A. Hagner writes this, It's impossible that that we can enjoy God's forgiveness without in turn extending our forgiveness towards others. Daryl Johnson says this, The way I understand what Jesus is teaching us is this, If I am not willing to forgive others, then I am not asking God to forgive me. No matter what words I use, I'm asking God to excuse me, but not asking God to forgive me. Tim Keller says this, if you believe the gospel, if you believe that you are saved by sheer grace and the free forgiveness of God, and you still hold a grudge, at the very least it shows that you are blocking the actual effect of the gospel in your life. Or you're kidding yourself and perhaps don't believe the gospel at all. Many throughout church history have said that we are never more like God than when we forgive. That We are never more like God than when we forgive. And remember, the Sermon on the Mount is a picture that Jesus is painting for us of gospelized humanity, of the the kind of people that we become. When the good news of His love and His grace takes root in our heart, it changes us. It it transforms us into men and women who exude that that characteristic of mercy, into men and women who extend forgiveness. Because we know what it is to, to have a debt, to have a debt that's been canceled. We know what it is to be in desperate need of mercy and to have received it. God is creating a new humanity, gospelized humanity. He's reversing the curse. He is undoing the sinful human tendency towards vengeance and revenge and grudge keeping. He is giving us new hearts, hearts that are in sync with his heart, hearts full of mercy and grace. On the cross, Jesus cried out to the Father, 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 forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus pled for the forgiveness of the very ones who were putting him to death. This is not some tit-for-tat arrangement. God will forgive you if you forgive someone else. It's not that. It's it's a proclamation of God's incredible, mind-blowing mercy that we have received that inevitably will change us into men and women whose hearts overflow with grace towards others. Men and women who increasingly look like Jesus. And none of that, none of that is to say that forgiveness will be easy. It's hard work. It's painful. When we forgive, we incur a debt. We incur the debt of another person's sin. And none of this is to say it will be quick. Forgiveness can be slow, hard work that takes time. Brennan mentioned a book I finished reading this week, The Hiding Place. Perhaps some of you are familiar with it. The story of Corrie ten Boom and her family. They were Dutch watchmakers. In World War II, Germany invaded. And Corrie and her family became part of a resistance movement, movement hiding Jews, trying to protect the lives of those the Germans were rounding up to kill. Corey and her sister Betsy and her father were eventually arrested. Her father died 10 days later. Corey and her sister Betsy ended up in Ravensburg, a concentration camp in Germany. The suffering that they went through was incredible to read about. And, and yet, Betsy's heart overflowed with love and grace amazing, amazing, and just challenged Corey throughout her experience. Sadly, Betsy died in that concentration camp, but she died after sharing a vision that God had given her with Corey of, of a home where after the war they would help people heal. They would help people heal from all the trauma that they had experienced. And so Corey, after the war, in amazing ways, God brought that to fruition. And Corey went on and spoke and shared the story of her experience in Betsy's over and over, including in Germany. In fact, opened a home for healing in Germany. I want to read just a part of the story here to you. But the place where the hunger was greatest was Germany. Germany was a land in ruin, cities of ashes and rubble, and more terrifying still, minds and hearts of ashes. Just across the border was to feel the great weight that hung over the land. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room dorm in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time, and suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, How grateful I am for your message, Fräulein, he said, to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I who had preached so often to the people of Blomendale, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing. Not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on His. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives, along with the command, the love itself. Forgiveness is hard. Corey's testimony bears witness to that but empowered by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. We can be transformed by the gospel. God enables us to forgive as we have been forgiven. He enables us to show mercy as He has shown mercy, to absorb the debt of another person's sin, to pay the price out of a love that is supernatural that comes from Him. Each one of us Each one of us today bears wounds, bears scars from the sin of others. And I have no doubt that for some, those scars, those wounds remain yet open and deeply painful. And it can be incredibly challenging and hard to even hear these words, this call to forgive. Perhaps this morning you've you've recognized within your heart anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. Perhaps you've been helped to see that there is something that you are holding on to that God wants you to let go of at the foot of the cross. That God wants to so fill you with His grace that it flows from you to others. I want to conclude this morning by showing a video. Those of you who are online, there will be a slide there. You'll have to watch it on your own because of copyright. This is part of the story that I shared to open this message about Renee and about Eric and that process in their lives where God has brought healing and forgiveness and freedom. It's a story that makes me weep over and over. God calls us, God shapes us to be his people who extend grace Renee's story inspired Matthew West, some of you know him, a Christian artist, to write a song you might be familiar with, Forgiveness. And so we're going to close with this immediately after the video. The worship team will come forward and lead us in a closing song. I pray that this will touch your heart and, and that as we watch this, even now during these next few minutes, that that you that if, if Christ is calling you to let go of something, that you would do business with Jesus as you hear this amazing story. Amazing story of the power of the gospel for forgiveness.